We live in a day when people are celebrated for manipulating the scriptures to say whatever the culture is calling for. What should our attitude be toward biblical truth? Stay with me, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. Hello, friends. Welcome to Open Line with me, Dr. Michael Radelnik. This is Moody Radio's Bible study across America. I'm Michael Radelnik. I'm the Dean and Professor of Jewish Studies and Bible at Moody Bible Institute. I'm so glad to be sitting around the radio kitchen table with you, taking your questions about the Bible, God, and the spiritual life. And if you have a question, now's the time to call. The phone number here is 877-548-3675. Again, 877-548-3675. If you want to know the clue to getting in, is call early <laughs> because it's before the phone lines fill. So 877-548-3675. Thanks, Karen Hendren, for filling in today for Trish as producer Handling all things technical today, filling in for Courtney is Ryan McConaughey, and answering the phones is Josie Robbins. So now it's time to go get yourself a cup of coffee, open your Bible, because we're about to study the scriptures together. But before we get to your questions, let's talk about what our attitude should be toward biblical truth. You know, when our first child was born, even I had to decide on guardians for him. He was the most precious trust we had ever received from the Lord. We agonized over who would we pass that trust on to if the Lord were to take us home uh, before he reached adulthood. As we prayed and sought the Lord, he directed us to a couple who loved the Lord, who were great parents, who shared our faith and values. They agreed to be the guardians uh, in our will, and we knew that should anything happen to us, our kids would be well cared for. It's a great trust to give someone, uh, to call them your guardians, and they needed to guard our kids. Well, in a similar way, Paul, as he was facing the end of his life, he wrote to Timothy about a sacred trust he had already passed on to him, the pattern of sound teaching he had entrusted to Timothy. And now, so many generations later, we're faced with a similar challenge. What do we do with the pattern of sound teaching that's been passed down to us in a culture that rejects truth or even the idea that there is truth. What must we do with sound biblical teaching that we've received? Let's look at 2 Timothy 1, 13 and 14. It says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Messiah Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Here are what I would say are three principles from 2 Timothy about what we should do with that sound deposit, those that pattern of biblical truth that's been passed on to us. First of all, we have to hold fast to sound teaching within us. The word follow is sometimes translated hold or hold fast in other versions. The basic Standard Greek lexicon says it should be translated grip and says it refers to holding fast to matters of transcendent importance. We need to hold on to the sound words we've received. It's like the way 
I would cross over Queens Boulevard when my son was a toddler, and we'd be crossing Queens Boulevard in Queens, New York. Now, Queens Boulevard, we lived right near the Queens County Courthouse. It was about eight lanes plus two extra little service lanes, so maybe 10 lanes across, right in the middle of Queens, New York, in the city. And there were so many cars and trucks on this main route through the borough of Queens, and we sometimes had to cross it to go to the park. And we'd be crossing with Zach. I would take his Hot Wheels in my left hand, and I would take his other hand, his hand in my right hand, and I would put the clamp on him. And his mom would be with us, and she'd put the clamp on his other hand. And if this two-year-old even tried to get away. Nope. We were holding on, and he couldn't get anywhere. Now, that's what we have to be like with the true faith. We need to hold fast, it says here, with the faith. We have to hold fast to the sound words, the sound teaching that we've received. And what I think is interesting is we need to hold fast, this passage says, with faith and love. Sometimes I think we can become a little feisty as we hold fast to the truth. I once had a great professor. He was a great teacher, but he lost a lot of the students in class because he would just eviscerate them, even if they just asked questions. He held to the truth so hard, but lost others in the way he presented it. There was no love in the presentation. We need to stay faithful and loving while holding fast to the truth. Second, we have to guard sound teaching from outside challenges. In verse 14, Paul says, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. In the ancient world, there were no banks, but if someone had a treasure, something valuable, they would deposit it in a temple and entrust it there for safekeeping. Paul had taken the very same concept. He had taken sound teaching, and now he compares it to a good deposit, but he's deposited it to Timothy, and ultimately, as it's been passed down, to us. And we're to guard it from anyone that would seek to harm it. It's like putting our treasures in a bank account or a safety deposit box. We'd never entrust them to a bank that says, we don't use keys on our deposit boxes. They're not safe, but they're free. Or we're not insured by the FDIC. We can't guarantee the safety of your retirement money. No, when we deposit in a bank, we want security. And when we receive the deposit, it's like we're the bank. We're the depository of sound teaching. We need to secure it and defend it, according to this verse, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Third, we need to transfer sound teaching to others. That's based actually on a verse, a few verse, few verses down in Second Timothy two two. Listen to this: and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Truth should never be kept to ourselves, but it has to be given to others so they can pass it on to others as well. Many years ago, when I was doing my pastoral internship in Israel, there was a young man working as an evangelist. He was zealous and really effective about the gospel, but he lacked knowledge of the scriptures. So it was my job to teach him the Bible one-on-one. And the thing that amazed me was what he did with the biblical truth I taught him. For example, one day I was teaching him about the ministries of the Holy Spirit as found in Scripture. Then the very next day, I saw he had gathered three young men that he had led to the faith, and I heard him teaching them the very same truths I had passed on to him the day before. It was 2 Timothy 2.2 in action. Remember, 
In this day, when truth is under siege, Paul gives us a model of what we're to do. We need to hold fast, guard, and teach biblical truth. Well, before we begin taking questions, let's talk about our current resource. I'm deeply committed to this book because I wrote it. Uh, based on the questions asked right here on OpenLine. It's called 50 Most Important Bible Questions. It's a way that I am trying to take the truth that, that God has shown me from Scripture and pass it on to others. I tried my best to give easy-to-grasp answers that would be receivable by everyone, from the seeker to the mature, mature Jesus follower. This book is yours if you give a gift of any size to OpenLine. It's our way of saying thanks so much. If you'd like to give, just call 888-644-7122 or go to openlineradio.org. And remember, when you give, ask for 50 most important Bible questions. Uh, and we're going to talk, first of all, with Larry in Indiana. Uh, welcome to Open Line, Larry. How can I help you? Thank you for taking my call, Dr. Rydelnik. Uh I was studying uh, the good, uh, sorry, the Jesus and the Samaritan woman in John 4, and then I noticed uh, in the notes it had that in the New Testament, the word Messiah translates the Greek word Christos um, everywhere except in John 141 and John 4.25. So I was curious as to why John chose a different word. Uh, it says it translates Messiah as opposed to Christos. Well, the, the Hebrew word is Mashiach, and it means anointed one, and it became a technical term for the coming deliverer, okay? Uh, and uh, so most of the time in the New Testament, they just took the word anointed one and translated it into uh, uh, Christos. But in John 1, for example, when... Uh, What's happening there is, uh, uh, it's verse 41, I believe, yeah? Uh, it says, yep. when, it says, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard John and followed him. He first found his own brother Simon and told him, and now it's a quotation. And so instead of translating it, it says, we have found the Messiah, which means anointed one. In other words, it took a direct quote, and instead of translating the word anointed one from Mashiach to Christos, what the author does there is he says, this is just, uh, it's a quotation. So he didn't really say Christos. He transliterates it as Messiah. And then for the reader, he, the Greek reader, he says, which is the same word as Christos. And then the same thing happens in John 4, verse, 20, verse 25. Uh, as I knock over my microphone, uh, the, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. Notice it's a quote. And then I believe that's a editorial note who is called Christos. So it's in, in two quotations. When the person actually said the word Messiah, John decided to transliterate and then define into Greek. It's just a, a matter of saying, I'm giving you direct quotes. That's all he was doing. Okay? Yeah. Very yeah. helpful. Thank you so much. 
Sure. I'm so glad you called, and thanks for doing that. We're going to take a break here, and when we come back, we've got lots of questions lined up. The phone number here is 877-548-3675. You can still get your call in, so don't miss out. You're listening to Open Line with Michael Rydelnik. Stay right there. I'm coming right back with more questions. Welcome back, America. Welcome back to the kitchen table. This is Michael Rydelnik. The program is called Open Line. People ask me all the time, what's with the kitchen table, Rydelnik? Well, when I planted a congregation many years ago on Long Island, New York, we rented a meeting room at first, but we had no offices. As a result, most of the time I met with people and taught them the Bible, sitting around my kitchen table. Uh, even I would sit there and we'd have... Uh, uh, just you know, four or five people sitting around the table, and sometimes two, and we would just study the scriptures together, and that worked so well. Even after we got a building and we had a place to meet at the building, I kept right on doing that. I just thought it was a great location to study. And when I started Open Line, I used to imagine myself sitting around the kitchen table talking about the scriptures, answering the questions that so many people had. Uh, and there were so many folks who listened regularly and began to give monthly that since we were sitting around the kitchen table, we called them kitchen table partners. You know, you may never have even considered giving to Open Line, but if you have or would now, we'd so appreciate you becoming a kitchen table partner. Uh, if you do become a kitchen table partner, you'll receive a every other week Bible study moment. It's an audio Bible study designed exclusively for our kitchen table partners. Click on it in your email, get to listen. Uh, also, there's other uh, joys, but mostly I think the joy of being a kitchen table partner is knowing that God's Word will be taught regularly every week on Open Line to help people understand the Scriptures better. Uh, if you'd like to become a kitchen table partner, all you have to do is just call 888-644-7122. Or go to openlineradio.org. And uh, we're going to talk with Ken in Kentucky. Welcome to Open Line, Ken. How can I help you? Uh, yes, uh, it's Pam, not Ken. Uh, oh, Cam. 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 Sorry yes. about that. Yes. Uh, I'm, I'm just reading what's on the screen. I'm sorry. It's <laughs> okay. Uh, Southern. What is the significance of the red half in the Bible? Uh, is that uh, like before the temple is built, or does, I mean, in Numbers 19.2, it mentions, but uh, I've lost my understanding of it. Yeah, well, you hear a lot about the red heifer, don't you? You know, you, there's, yeah. there's there's all these reports, you know, that they're finding a red heifer, and they found some red heifer. There was even a TV series about, you know, the end of days and uh, it was just on a secular network, but they did. It was all about finding the red heifer. Uh, here's the here's the deal with the red heifer. It says in Numbers nineteen two that uh, instruct the Israelites to bring you an unblemished red cow. What the King James translates a red heifer that has no defect and has never been yoked. Well, all it says is it shouldn't have any defect. It appears 
that in rabbinic literature, the way they define a defect would be if there's a red cow, if it had a little white hair, white fur on it someplace. Well, that's really not a defect. A defect. That's not what the Bible says a defect is. A defect might be a limp or a, a, a blind eye or a, a damaged ear or something like that. Uh, and so when, when the Bible calls for a red heifer, it just means a red cow that's not blemished in any way in terms of its physical uh, makeup, but doesn't refer to not having one little white hair. And that's why they uh, people are going crazy because they think it's so unique to have one that has not one white uh, piece of fur, no no white patch, no nothing on it like that, or a, that that they think, oh, uh, that's so rare, and only when that appears can we can the temple be rebuilt. But it has nothing to do with that. It, there, there's going to be a lot of when the temple is rebuilt, there will be a lot of red cows without blemish that had never been yoked. So. I don't think it's. So it does represent the uh, temple that's going to be built uh, when they. No, uh, no. I I think in Numbers nineteen is just talking about the sacrificial cow for purification. Oh, okay. But okay. what they're saying is, if the temple is going to be rebuilt, it has to be this perfect one. And uh, I, I'm saying, well, the temple is going to be rebuilt because the scriptures say so. But it does, this yes. cow is not the sign of it. You know, without a, without one white hair, I think people are making too much of a uh, of a deal out of it. That's what I think. So when the temple's being built, so the say the red heifer, is that going to be represent Christ? When the when the temple is rebuilt and there's going to be sacrifices, what will they represent? They will yes. be they'll be similar to the Lord's Supper. Uh, there oh. will be uh, something to remember the death of the Messiah on our behalf, because yes. you know death won't be real common in the millennium. There won't be a lot of people dying. It says that if someone dies at a hundred, they'll be considered young. Uh, and so, when the sacrifice, when there, and there'll be people born in the millennium, they will have to trust Jesus. They will have to believe that He died for them and rose again. And since death isn't so common, they won't really grasp that. And so, there'll be sacrifices to teach what price the Messiah paid. Uh, it'll be like a memorial for what He did for us. And they will then better understand what what price he paid for our redemption, and then they'll be able to trust in him. So that's the point of the sacrifices that are described in Ezekiel forty through forty eight. Okay. Ezekiel, yeah, and thank you so much. Uh, yeah. That, so, yeah, I appreciate it. Thank yeah, you. I'm so so glad you called. Thanks. Uh, we're going to speak with Jim in Medina, Ohio, listening on WCRF. Welcome to Open Line, Jim. How can I help you? Uh, hi, Dr. Reinoldnick. Um, I'm going through Hebrews with a friend. We're doing some uh, mutual discipleship. And uh, in Hebrews 1.4, in the King, or rather, yeah, in, in the New King James, it says, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. But in the, in the like, God's Word of the Nations version, it says, you are my son today. I've become your father. I guess I'm struggling with a begotten. It sounds almost like God the Father created God the Son. Can well, you relate to that? Yeah, I'll I'll try and explain for you if I can. The quotation that you're reading is uh, from Hebrews one five, 
For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father, or I will be a father and he will be my son. Uh, That's actually a quotation. The first one, the one that you're asking about, is from Psalm 2-7. And in Psalm 2-7, a messianic psalm, talking about the Messiah, what, and he's quoting it in the same way that it was written. In Psalm 2-7, what he says is, you are my son. Uh, uh, he said to me, you are my son. Today I have, and in Hebrew it says, I've begotten you. And this version says, you are my son. Uh, the one that I'm reading. The word begotten in, in Hebrew is reflective of ancient Near Eastern practice of kingship. When someone went through the coronation and became king, they were said to become the son of God. Okay? Uh, And it meant that they, like for example, in Egypt where the, the, uh, the pharaoh, we have, we have this in ancient Egyptian, the pharaoh became a son of, the, of God and therefore was equal to God. It has to do not with birth or creation. It has to do with coronation, with entering into kingship. Now, the thing that we see from Scripture is that God the Son is eternally begotten. He's always been king. He was king at creation. He was uh, he'll be he was king at his incarnation. He became king uh, uh, at his resurrection. He'll become king again. He'll have another coronation when he takes up the throne of David in Jerusalem at his return. So he is eternally the the God the Son, and therefore the Son of God. He's eternally the King, and he's eternally God. That's the point of Psalm two seven that this one is eternally God and receives worship. Okay? The idea has okay, to do with entering means, into kingship. Okay, so it shouldn't make me struggle with the Trinity or anything like no, that. No, no. No, it's, it's actually being used in Hebrews one five as support for the deity of Jesus. Not, okay. not, that, not that he's inferior... But that that father son relationship indicates full equality. That God the Father and God the Son are equal. He is not inferior like the angels. That's the point in Hebrews one five. Okay. Okay. Thank you for your time. Yeah. Thanks so much for calling. Appreciate that. Uh, let's see. We're going to speak with uh, Gretchen in Cleveland, Ohio. Also listening on WCRF. Welcome to Open Line, Gretchen. How can I help you? Hi, thank you. Uh, sure. I have the scripture, First uh, Samuel twenty-one seven. Uh, now, one of Saul's servants was there that day, detained before the Lord. He was Doeg the Edomite, Saul's chief mm-hmm. shepherd. And uh, I know he he had killed the priest and his family. Mm-hmm. So why did the, why was he detained before the Lord when David came to take the uh, sword and uh, run away from Saul. Why? Well, I don't I don't understand your question. I'm sorry. I wish I did. What what no, why did God okay. 
why did, why did God allow that? Is that what you're asking? Right. I was curious as to the words detained before the Lord. He was Doeg the Edomite. Uh, in, in uh, Samuel 21 7. 21.7, I see. Uh, one of Saul's servants detained before the Lord was there that day. His name was Doeg the Edomite, chief of Saul's shepherds. Well, obviously, Doeg the Edomite was at the tabernacle worshiping. And that's what it means he was detained. He's, it means he stayed long worshiping. And so that, that's what it means. It wasn't like God detained him or, or someone else did. Uh, it's just that he, ha- and that's how he overheard all that was going on, uh, because he stayed long. And uh, is, is, that, is that the question you had, or is there anything else? Yeah, I, I was wondering, yeah, if, if, I mean, well, God, God knows everything, but I was wondering if he was detained on purpose because he was supposed to see the, the, the priest Ahimelech um, yeah. helped out Saul, or helped out David, and then Saul, and then, you know, Saul yeah. was... Uh, mad because David said, "I knew it when I saw yeah. somebody escaped." And David well, said, l- "I l- knew it." When let I me saw. let me just say this because we're running out of time. Even bad things that happen are under God's sovereign plan. It was all part of the plan. Doesn't mean that uh, Doeg the Edomite was not culpable and guilty for what he had done. It's not like God was guilty, but it, he had this whole plan of what happened and. Uh, sometimes we don't understand it, but God does. It's all under his sovereign plan, and uh, maybe that's why God allowed him to be detained, because it was part of the plan. So appreciate your call, Gretchen. We're going to come right back with the mailbag, so don't go away. Uh, Karen's coming in. She's dragging it right now. This is Michael Rydelnik. You're listening to Open Line, and joining me right now is our producer for the day, Karen Hendren, who's sitting in for Trish McMillan, who's our regular producer. So glad you're with me, Karen. It's great to be here. Yeah, Karen, you know, I, it's not like I don't know you. It's like you're not some new person out of the blue. I mean, how many years have you been working as a producer for Moody Radio? It's been eight years. But you know yeah. what? The funny thing is, last night I was looking through some old emails, and um, I've been working with Ed for almost five years, and wow. I didn't realize it had been the show had been on the air that long. So wow, that's yeah. amazing! Wow, that's great. Uh, yeah, you know, sometime in April, I have to actually ask Trisha because I forget. But sometime in April, it will be eleven years. Wow, that that open line's been on the air. Wow, uh, that's pretty exciting to me. Uh, well, uh, you know what? I've been, I've been teaching though at Moody Bible Institute. For, I'm in my 30th year now. Wow. Which, yeah. You've you got know, a some, legacy. Well, no, I'm I just, I'm old. That's what it is. <laughs> it's made me old. Uh, but, you know, sometimes people think I'm so old that D.L. Moody interviewed me <laughs> for the job. But no, he didn't. He was gone by then. But uh, Moody's had Jewish studies for 100 years, but we have a lot of other majors. And I believe, and I went to Moody myself, I think it's one of the great foundations for life Uh whether you go into vocational ministry or not, even you become, I have a a graduate that I taught many courses in and he was someone 
I love he's he's a he's a construction worker. He builds houses and he actually he's more of a renovator and he gets to know the people and he uses the foundation that he had at Moody to teach the Bible, to share the gospel, uh, and he's just doing it like that. And then there, I, th- I think that's so interesting because, you know, I have a friend I went to school with. He's an attorney, U.S. attorney for the, the uh, one of the states here, Eastern District of Wisconsin. Uh, I've got another friend who's a, went to school with, I went to school with him, and he is a, an executive vice president of one of the major Chicago banks. Here's the point. I love Moody Bible Institute because it gives you a great foundation in life, no matter what your career will be, teaching you the Bible and ministry skills. You can use that wherever you go. And the reason I'm mentioning this is we're coming up against uh, some days when students need to get their applications. If you have a young person in your life who's thinking about college for next year, now's the time to think about Moody. It's a great time. Uh, Moody Bible Institute has a great webpage. You can check it out. It's moody.edu. Go look at that and talk to your your son, daughter, grandson, granddaughter, neighbor, cousin, nephew. doesn't matter. Uh, talk to the person so that they can think about going to Moody Bible Institute. I That was a great foundation for life for me. Yeah, absolutely. Now, are you haven't taken any courses at Moody, have you? I haven't. I've thought about yeah. it and... Uh, it's sort of on my list, but yeah. uh, I have not. I have not. Well, I'll be talking with you about that. Next okay. Hour. Yeah. Okay. There we go. <laughs> okay. Well, let's let's hit hit the mailbag. What's what do you got for me? Okay. Well, uh, we'll start with Andy. Uh, he wrote in, and he wants to know if you have a reading list that you suggest before your Holy Land tours. Uh, you know, what would you read? So, if you're going, that you I, have the best I, experience. I do have a reading list. If you look under. Uh, messianicjourneys.org there's a FAQ link uh, at messianicjourneys.org and there's all these books you could read but I think that you know when people are going to Israel or Greece or Jordan they just want one book that will give them sort of a guide and my friend Charlie Dyer and Greg Hatterberg, my I have two friends from school days back at Dallas Seminary uh Charlie was the provost, and he's the host of Land in the Book, and uh, Greg Hatterberg's a Moody grad and uh, a dean of enrollment, I believe, at, at Dallas Seminary. But anyway, they wrote a book called The Christian Traveler's Guide to the Holy Land. It's available through Moody Publishers, and I strongly recommend it. That sounds great. Mm-hmm. Well, I got another question for you. Yeah. Deborah from Pennsylvania, she wrote in. She listens in on the app. Uh, she's got a question about uh, Leviticus 1, 10, and 11. And she wants to know, why must the animal be killed on the north side of the altar? Mm-hmm. Well, if you hit the commentaries, particularly the ones that deal with treating the tabernacle like a, a very s- super, every every knot, every bump, every uh, uh, thing in the tabernacle has a symbolic sense. And so they, they kind of go a little crazy about this. Uh, there are a lot of theologically far-fetched explanations. I'm going to tell you what I think it is. Are you ready? Yeah. It says he will slaughter the uh, animal from the flock, the sheep or the goats. He will slaughter it, which is a technical term, the word slaughter. It's just not like butchering. It had to do with the special way that the priests operated. Uh, 
it's a technical term in scripture for a priestly offering. Anyway, he will slaughter it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. Well, as I looked at it, when you look at the tabernacle, entrance is on the east side, but then, and then in front of you was the altar. And it was, it was very large, so much so that people think that there were either steps or a ramp walking up to it on the south side. So think about it. You come on the east, you walk around, and the priest would go up the ramp on the south side of the altar or the steps. There was no room for sacrifice on the south side because you had to have that ramp going up to the altar. On the east side of it, according to Leviticus 1.16, that's where the ashes were tossed. So the ashes of, of all that was burnt, taken off the altar and dumped on the east side of the altar. On the west side of the altar was the laver or the basin for washings. Uh, and so basically, there is no room to do sacrifice except on the north side. It, it's really for very practical purposes. It was this, this is the only place where, you could, where there was room to do the sacrifices. That's interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, I got another question. Yeah, you know what? People want to have some sort of really supernatural, significant kind of uh, explanation. <laughs> it's, the Bible is very practical. Where are you going to do the sacrifice? In the place where there's space. Yeah, yeah, and yep. and and there are a lot of a lot of those rules when you look at it and break them down. They're very practical. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, okay, I got a question from Carla who listens in on WCRF. Today's a big WCRF day. Yeah, sure uh, is. She's got a question, a question about uh, Exodus nineteen and twenty when Moses uh, receives the Ten Commandments. She wants to yeah. know if the Lord spoke the Ten Commandments loud enough for the Israelites to hear from the base of the mountain while Moses was with them. Yeah, doesn't she say something about it? Uh, I don't have the questions here in front okay. of me, but she said something about uh, not wanting to go up or something like that. Right, right. So, yeah, so she... Go ahead and mention that too. What yeah, she, she says uh, she said she was reading through the Bible, and her question is: When God spoke the Ten Commandments in Exodus nineteen, God told Moses not to let the people come up to the mountain. Yeah, that's what I wanted. And he sent Moses down to the people. Yeah. Well, here is the deal: in Exodus nineteen, he does want the people to come up the mountain. That's what I wanted to mention. Uh, in Exodus nineteen. Uh, it says in verse 12, put boundaries for the people all around the mountain. And he says, don't be careful not to touch it for how long? For three days. Uh, and uh, then he says in verse 13, uh, uh, here it is. No animal or man will live if they touch the mountain for three days. They have boundaries. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast on the third day, they shall go up the mountain. Now, a lot of versions say up to, but the Hebrew and many other versions say they will go up the mountain. So isn't that amazing? Yeah. They're supposed to go up. And then they see the fire and, and the thunder and the lightning and the thick cloud, and they become afraid. So they won't come up. They disobey God. They don't come up. And they say to Moses, uh, let us, you know, you go up for us. And then God says, okay, now they can't come up. And then he prohibits them. But first they were supposed to. They were supposed to be a nation of priests. And then they became a nation with priests, mediators. So it, was, it started with them needing to come up, and then they were too afraid to come up. They never heard the words. They only saw the sounds and the, the scariness there that 
that led to that. So anyway, there you go. Uh, I, I think we're going to take a break here. And uh, thank you for putting the mailbag together, Karen. Uh, and uh, I hope that I, I usually teach about Exodus 19 and 20. It takes me an hour. I just tried to do it in two minutes. Oh, <laughs> hope people can follow that. Uh, we're going to be right back with more of your questions. Call 877-548-3675. You're listening to Open Line with Michael Ray Delnick. Welcome back to Open Line. So glad you're listening today. You know, we're getting ready to celebrate Passover. Jewish people all over the world will, be, will begin observing Passover in just a few weeks. It's a festival that is such a meaningful celebration of redemption. There's rich teaching in this festival, and to get it, Chosen People Ministries is offering a free booklet called a pa- Passover, A Time for Redemption. It explains the significance of the Exodus, and also it, I think, opens our eyes to the way Passover foreshadows the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Understanding Passover will change our understanding of the Lord's Supper forever. For a free copy of Passover, A Time for Redemption, just go to the Open Line website. That's openlineradio.org. Scroll down, you'll see a link that says, A Free Gift from Chosen People Ministries. Click on that, and you'll be taken to a page where you can sign up for your own free copy of Passover, A Time for Redemption. We're going to speak with Luke in Ohio, again, listening on WCRF. You think, uh, hey, Ryan, is is the, is the show going out to all the stations or just to, just to Cleveland? So, uh, It just seems like Cleveland. Hey, hey, Luke, welcome to Open Line. How can I help you? Hey, it's good to be talking with you. Uh, Thank normally you. I listen on the podcast, but today's the first time I'm listening to, on the live station for a oh, while. Great. But um, I, just had a, I just had a quick question. Um, so... God had the covenant with Abraham uh, that the Messiah would kind of come from his line and the line of David. Um, In the genealogy, it ends with Joseph. But how do we reconcile that with the fact that Jesus was not the biological son of Joseph? He was the biological son of Mary, Miriam, who was also a descendant of Abraham. So physically, he was a descendant of Abraham on his mother's side. So that's one thing. And then secondly, uh, legally... He was a descendant of Abraham on his father's side because in Jewish law, an adopted child, and Joseph did adopt the Lord Jesus, uh, an adopted child has all the rights and prerogatives of a born child. So he, according to law, was a son of Abraham, even though he was not on his father's side physically descended from Abraham. Make sense? But he did have it legally, yeah, le- legally and both physically through his mother, Mary. That's how he had it physically. Okay? Okay. Great. Great. Thank you. Thank- hey, thanks for your call, Luke. Really appreciate it. Uh, we're going to speak with Joan in Tennessee. Oh, good. Someone other than the Cleveland person. Uh, we love the Cleveland people, though. Uh, Joan in Tennessee listening on WFCM. Welcome to Open Line, Joan. How can I help you? Good morning. Thank you. I've been um, thinking of the definition of inspiration, and when I read Galatians 3.19, that God gave his law through angels to Moses, and I'm assuming this is the first set of tablets, I'd um, like some clarification. Sure. 
Uh, you know what? That was a terrible connection. So I'm going to repeat your question, Joan. Uh, uh, you want to know how it was that the law could have been mediated by angels. It says in Galatians 3, 9, 10, 19, uh, that the law was mediated through angels. Uh, that actually has its roots in Deuteronomy, just a reference to it. It was really expanded in rabbinic literature, but in Deuteronomy 33, 2, uh, it says, and, and this is important, uh, it says, uh, when the Lord came down from, from Sinai and appeared to them from Seir, he shone on them from Mount Paran. He came with 10,000 holy ones with lightning from his right hand for them. So at the giving of the law, he came with 10,000 holy ones. So uh, he was uh, accompanied by a host of angels. And that's, this is by, because of this, rabbinic literature really began to emphasize that God had mediated this through angels. And so you see it in Acts 7.51. It says, when in Stephen's speech, it says, uh, uh, I think it's, it says that the law, oh, verse 753, you receive the law under the direction of angels or through angels. Uh, and then also in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 2, uh, it, it emphasizes the idea that, that God used angels to communicate the law. Uh, it says uh, that, uh, two, two, it says, the message spoken through angels was legally binding. So the law of Moses, uh, even though God gave it, he used messengers. Angels mean messengers. He used angelic messengers to communicate some of it to Moses. Okay? Yes. I know what scripture says, and I do believe Oh, you, you know, you know, you're just so choppy. I think you're saying, how does this relate to inspiration? Well, God uses all sorts of means. What He did is when some, when Moses wrote it down, that's where inspiration happened in the written text of Scripture. So He used the Holy the Holy Spirit moved Moses as writer of the Torah. Uh, that's the way Second Peter one twenty one puts it. He was moved by the Spirit of God uh, to write down the inspired text of scripture. Inspiration happens not with the angels giving it to Moses. Inspiration happens when the Holy Spirit leads Moses to write down or superintends Moses to write down what the angelic messengers gave him. So inspiration, all scripture is inspired, not the process. Often we think of inspiration as a process. That's the superintending work of the Holy Spirit is the process. But the text itself is what is inspired. And the, so when Moses wrote the text, not when he received it on the mountain, but when Moses wrote it down in the text of the Torah, that's when he was superintended by the Holy Spirit to write it down and then we get an inspired text. I hope that, hope that helps. Uh, Joan, I wish we could talk more, but your line is just really, really hard to understand. Uh, we're going to speak with uh, Doug in Indiana on WFCM. Ask your question really, really quickly, Doug, because we're running up against the clock. Okay. Uh, is the temple discussed in Ezekiel 40 through 48 in our future? If it is, what is the purpose of the sacrificial system? 
And do you think that that temple will be a third or a fourth temple? I do think there's going to be a temple. I This is obviously, you, you didn't pick up, just a little while ago we talked about this. Uh, those temples sacrifices will be a memorial sacrifice. They're not going to be atoning in the sense of providing redemption, the, the Messiah's sacrifice. Even the Old, Old Testament sacrifices, remember, they weren't atoning, the Old Testament sacrifices. They just pointed forward. So the, the millennial temple will point backwards. Uh, there'll be, it depends on what you mean by a third or a fourth temple. There'll be a temple built in the millennium, and then it's going to be changed. I mean, there'll be a temple built in the tribulation period or for the tribulation period. Uh, then I believe it'll be changed. So maybe the tribulation temple will be considered a third temple, and then a fourth temple would be the millennial temple. But I think that, you know, in the Bible, it kind of unifies the temple. I call it the Yankee Stadium thing. You know, we have uh, Yankee Stadium. It was built, and then it was rebuilt in 1970, and then in 19-whatever, or about 10 years ago, I guess, or 15 years ago, it was rebuilt across the street, but rebuilt, still called Yankee Stadium. If you think about it, there may, right now there's been three Yankee stadiums, but really it's all Yankee Stadium. It's kind of the one idea of it. And so uh, that's how the temple is. There's There was the te Zerubbabel's temple, do you remember, when they came back? And then there was the Herod's temple, so that could be considered a third. But no, we call that the second temple. And then uh, then you're going to have the millennial, the the tribulation temple, and then you'll have the millennial temple and then there'll be the eternal temple of god and the new creation so uh no need for anything other than him so uh anyway. so your answer is it's memorial and looking back and it was never meant to be atoning right there's only with. one sacrifice that ever really took away sin not the old testament sacrifices covered but did not take away sin uh the that's the same idea. They, they will provide ritual purification and a memorial of what Messiah did. I hope that helps. Uh, uh, didn't want to take too long about that, but uh, there you go. Thanks for listening, everyone. That's the first hour. Keep listening because there's a second hour of Open Line on most of these stations. If your station doesn't carry it, you can always listen online or the Moody Radio app or on a podcast. During the break... Check out our webpage, openlineradio.org. It's got all sorts of helpful links there, including how to become a kitchen table partner or how to get our current resource. Our Bible study across America will continue in just a little bit, so stay with us. Open Line with Dr. Michael Radionik is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute. We're coming right back, so don't go away. <laughs> 